episode six of Two Brits, One Orange Ball. I'm joined by my bald-headed friend, Mark Littlewood. What is up, Jeffrey? How you doing, mate? You all right? Yeah, not too bad, bro. Not too bad. Just uh, getting over the episodes that were seven and eight of the new Jordan documentary. Great couple of episodes. I think I think they might be up there with my favourites so far. But also, for me personally, yeah, quite quite an emotional one, definitely. Yeah, I felt the same way. I think that obviously as we get into it, I think that will that will be the connotation for many that were watching it. It was emotional episodes and a really good insight to kind of get his competitive drives and a deeper dive into his motives for why he wanted to be so great. What have you been up to anyway, apart from apart from basketball things the last few days? Obviously, we've been away for a week or so after the interview with Brendan. A little apology to Brendan for tagging him in everything in life on social media. A lot, <laughs> lot of snippets in. Those, those have finished now, Brendan, so thank you for bearing with me. What have you been doing with your week, man? I know you've had a busy one as well. Yeah, just trying to keep busy, trying to keep the brain active, Jay. I've got a few things going on in between not working at the moment and obviously being furloughed. Looking to sort of get back to some degree of normality sooner rather than later, but just trying to stay positive, trying to stay safe like everyone else in these uncertain times. And... Uh, yeah, just, just that really, bud. Um, I saw that you were doing some videography involving a cake. Mate, it's got to that stage of life. No no, no video work to be done. I'm, I'm yeah, getting camera equipment out, lights, filming my, my girlfriend, creating a Victoria sponge take. That, that's kind of where I'm at. <laughs> this is one of my concerns with furlough, Jay. My wife is constantly baking. She's uh, cakes, cookies, brownies. I'm putting on weight at an alarming rate. I need to start running. It, it's it's a bad time for us all, Jay. I'm going to start getting obese before this lockdown's out. Fat look on a bold man is not what you want in life. So I need to start stepping up my game and, and not drinking in the week as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, my happy bro. I'm, I'm very much the same though. And uh, I had a really weird moment the other day where I was uh, just walking past the mirror and I didn't have my glasses on. Obviously, my hair's huge now. And I literally looks like a 16-year-old me with like massive hair. This is this is concerning. I need to, I need to, something needs to change. But yeah, man, it definitely just trying to stay positive, as you say, trying to keep myself busy, trying to trying to learn a few more things. After Effects is coming onto my radar, as well as the video stuff. So yeah, just just taking over, mate. And obviously, this this podcast helps as a creative outlet, 100%. Moving on, obviously, this episode predominantly we'll be talking about episodes seven and eight of The Last Dance. As, as we've just mentioned, quite quite an emotional one and probably the best so far for us. Starting with episode seven, mate, obviously we, we come in and we see a, a, an exhausted Michael Jordan 98 after previous two episodes, focusing a lot on that media coverage and that lifestyle that he had to bear, I suppose would be the best way of describing it as well as being one of the most polarizing athletes in the world. What, what did you think going into that, seeing Jordan in that condition? I think it was understandable for a man of that magnitude and that amount of exposure it's going to be draining and obviously they kind of alluded to it in the episodes that there was similarities between the 93 Jordan and the 98 Jordan and to perform at that level with that level of scrutiny media intrusiveness just all out scrutiny in terms of attributes in his personal life and ultimately that orientation towards winning at all costs is going to take a strain it's going to drain you and I think that you know, ultimately as well, we, we build these sports icons up to be gods. Ultimately, they're only human. I think that it was refreshing and interesting to see an insight into that more mortal side of Jordan, I suppose. The episode goes on to talk about his relationship with his father. And the joy of sports for me came out in that little moment where dad is, is bringing kids from the crowd at the Bull Stadium to come and meet Michael 
and just their their sort of pure joy and excitement at that stage. As you say, you know, we 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 portray them as gods and for kids to meet idols and people of that ilk. It's, it's what sports is about and it's the essence of why these sorts of things are so great for society, in my opinion. That was obviously a really refreshing thing to see from there. We go in to dive into Jordan's dad passing away. It was a, a pretty horrible thing to experience and look back on the way it happened. Two young kids essentially just rocking up on a car in the middle of nowhere as he sat on a sidewalk trying to get a bit of rest in a drive. Death provides perspective and everyone has their own sort of coping mechanism for those sorts of life events. It just really struck me and, and for Jordan to react in the way that he did, obviously taking an 18-month hiatus from the game that he loved. All those feelings and emotions that he was going through were quite fortunately similar to, for me in terms of, thankfully my, my father has not passed, but he, he went through a stage of particularly bad health in the last few years. And coincidentally, I, I went back to the sport that he introduced to me when I was a young kid, brought me up through the ranks in that. And I mean, I was, I was gone at that point. It, it, it struck me particularly hard but what were your thoughts on that that area mate and, and of that segment very emotional i think that you have these associations if you're lucky enough to have a relationship with your dad that transcends that father-son sort of relationship and also more like a friendship i think you're very very lucky and i think that we can both say that we've we've got those relationships with our dads which is which is a lovely thing to have and it's a bond that i think only gets deeper and greater as you get older and like you say, you gravitate back to those sort of initial memories of sports and you always want to do well for your dad and make your father proud. And, and you know, as you maturate into a man, you kind of look back on those moments with, with fondness, hopefully. But that kind of mirrored my feelings, your feelings and ultimately Jordan's feelings towards his dad. I mean, Jordan was with, with his dad. That was his rock. And to see what he had to go through and then for the media to speculate and have rumours that his death was suspected around MJ's gambling problem and ultimately his father's murder was, was quite grim viewing. It was an interesting insight into the relationship. I think a, um, an ultimate decision as to why he decided to leave the game and go to baseball because he wanted to realise that shared dream. And I think it was a coping mechanism in terms of his mourning also. I thought it was really special. I think the, the journalism side, yeah, it was, it was particularly disgusting. I and mean, obviously there's, there's certain outlets that are notorious for that type of thing. But I, I had no, no idea that the Jordan retirement broke a baseball game. And obviously Krauss is in attendance at that specific one that they're at. In the documentary, Krauss's reaction and as well as Ryan Storch's reaction was just pure disbelief at the time. As you say, mate, I think when you're in that point of life and those sorts of life events happen, they're so much bigger than anything else that you experience. We've mentioned many times on this podcast, you gravitate back to those early memories and you can just, you can almost feel his, his experiences as a young kid walking around with his dad with a baseball bat. And he obviously was taken back to that time when he heard of the news and that coping mechanism kind of took place. So really, a really, really sad element of that episode, but a really, really nice one in ways as well to kind of see how how he was able to deal with that in, in, a, in a positive way, I suppose, because, you know, you could have done anything in that situation. You could have gone completely off the rails. He was able to kind of have an outlet to cope with that. So that was lovely to see, mate. And moving on to something a bit lighter. I didn't realise that he played baseball until he was 17. And he started at, at 31 when he was he was moving over to the Birmingham Barons. And Jerry Reinsdorf obviously was involved with not only them, but also as the owner of the White Sox, knew, knew his stuff when it came to baseball. Looking at what his involvement was around that time, I had no idea that his, his net worth is near 1.5 billion. So wow. I was like, wow, okay, that's pretty impressive. Again, what, what stood out to me 
about that period specifically with him playing baseball was that he was by no means a scrub in that team he went on a 13 game hitting streak and I have no idea what a breaking ball is but apparently that was good no, no clue. <laughs> that, that makes um, terrible <laughs> Yeah, obviously was still still followed by a, a circus media at that time and couldn't really escape that element of it, I suppose. But to move back to the journalism side, headlines like Error Jordan instead of Air Jordan, you can see it in some of the kind of tabloid press of the UK, that sort of trashy, you know, headline. It was just sad. And, and again, it comes back to that quote that I think you cited the other day, mate, from Charles Barkley, where he's talking about people sitting in their mother's basement with their drawers on and doing nothing and just... just commenting on people trying to make a horrible situation positive and I think to not appreciate what he's going through and criticizing him at that stage of life trying to realize his father's own dream was pretty low as you mentioned it was the work ethic that I really admired he put everything into that aspect of life and he wanted escapism at the time from from something that was obviously very traumatizing absolutely Jay I absolutely second that I mean even Reinstorf said in the documentary that if he'd actually carried on, then there's no doubt that MJ would have made the major leagues of baseball. And, you know, that's like you say, that's just an attribute to his work ethic. You don't become a professional elite athlete without a strong work ethic and without a dedication to your craft. To be honest, from not really seeing it in, in that period of life, I, I thought he was a really bad baseball player. That was my perception going in. So to, to know he obviously did a little bit better than perhaps is portrayed was also pretty cool but moving on mate to to, to Michael's treatments of, of teammates we flash back again to his playing days specifically the the narrative is around Scott Burrell teammates calling him an arsehole saying that they're you know they're pushing hit but really that was always coming from a place of his desire to win his desire for excellence I think most people have probably had a boss a captain a coach in life that are trying to push you to get the best out of you and they're not always going to be your best mate was my was my thought process and sometimes you need that like I know for for a fact for myself I, I'm, I'm not always best of a self-starter but once I get there and I'm, I'm at training or I'm at a game or I'm at work, whatever it might be, or, or I'm in a project. That's at certain times where you, know, you can get the best out of yourself, but that's not always, not always a pleasant, pleasant experience. What, what were your thoughts, man? The lead dog will bite the shit out of you. That was my thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, when M- I thought it was quite interesting when MJ's sitting in the locker room. I believe it was in episode eight, but he's actually talking about the score is tied zip zip. And they're, um, they're talking shit. And he's there with a cigar in his mouth with a baseball bat talking sports philosophy. I just thought that was a really interesting sort of segment into the psyche that was MJ. And he's almost got this sort of psychopathic ability and drive to be great and to be a winner. And ultimately, he's kind of alluded that winning has a price and that leadership has a price ultimately. So he would pull those people along. And Scott Burrell, from memory, I think he only played for the Bulls for a season. But again, it's interesting to see how he would kind of ride him and that how Burrell would kind of just not react to it. He was just trying to get the best out of Burrell by hazing. And I think that when you're elite at something, society and sports especially, has a way of allowing these sorts of behaviours where in modern day diet, I don't think that those behaviours would necessarily be viewed or tolerated or, or celebrated in the same way. At the end of the day, you know, there's a very big difference between doing a relatively general job and being the best in the world at something. As, as you mentioned, at that level, there's a certain need for, for those sorts of things, specifically in sport. On occasion, you know, you know, it's not just Jordan that did that. Kobe obviously replicated that later on in life. And it was quite interesting that you could almost see Kobe in a lot of those 
moments. But for me, I think he comes out and says, as you, as you mentioned, w- winning comes at a price and leadership has a price too. He wants to pull along those people that didn't necessarily want to be pulled. And sometimes you need, you need to do that in a team sport where those guys were relatively f- not full of themselves, but, you know, content in a way maybe with their, you know, performance in the 92, 93 wins. And he wanted to dip them in the frying pan, I suppose, and, and see if they could manage. His rationale for that was if they can't deal with me berating them and, and saying these things and trying to push them. What chances are they going to have when it comes to playing against some of the best in the world in the NBA finals? And he was almost, I suppose, trying to, to, to test them at that stage and make them earn his respect. Because at the end of the day, you can't just walk onto a basketball court with the best in the world as in someone like Michael Jordan and expect to just automatically be on his level. Most people in the world aren't, by definition. You know, he is the top, the top guy. So I, I very much respected that. And I think there is a place for that in, in sport. Um, whether there's a place for that in, in some other areas of life, is, as you say, it's a very different conversation. I think seeing the contrast in personalities in Pippen and MJ as well, especially when MJ did have that 18-month hiatus, it was kind of that fire and ice combo. And I think that was the perfect complement. But not only, I think that Scotty gained a greater appreciation because for that short 18-month window, he was exposed to what MJ had to kind of go through and deal with as that premier star athlete and star attraction. He was therefore having to deal with more scrutiny when MJ wasn't around. And I think, you know, we're going to talk about it now, but highlighted by that 94 Knicks-Chicago semi-series when Pip refuses to go onto the court prior to uh, Kukoc hitting that game-winning shot. What were your thoughts on that? I was speechless. I I knew nothing about it. Genuinely nothing. I mean, we've all been there, right? Everyone has been on that team where you felt maybe you should take a shot that you don't get or... You know, you see someone that is the ball is put in their hands when you don't you feel maybe you should have it. But to refuse to go in the game is is another level, especially in a game with that level of importance. I was sort of moment to moment. So I didn't really know that the Kukoc hit that shot. So when he did, I was sort of jumping around. I was like, wow, that's that's an amazing <laughs> moment. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I, I didn't I didn't know the games as, as as thoroughly because, again, you kind of gravitate to the the big successful Michael Jordan games. That's generally what we're we're shown and what is marketed to us that was just like a really cool element to this that we we talked about in the first part in the pilot where we were talking about how i'm going to be in a narrative this is why i wanted that because of those types of moments it was a really really big mark on pippin and again it's something that isn't isn't really talked about which is surprising but like you say mate teammates reactions to that how he obviously had to be the man it was a it was a really cool insight and what i thought was particularly shocking and but also kind of respect it is that Scotty came out and said he wouldn't change it I was like what how they won the game so that might be part of the reason they lost it might have been a different story but the effect that he could have potentially had on that team and it's just another trial of success that they've obviously overcome as a team which again says a lot to Phil Jackson's leadership that they could get over something like that because that for many teams could completely cripple the trust you know specifically around Scotty but you know he, he comes back has the you know the iconic dunk on Ewing I, I'm assuming you enjoyed that moment quite a lot because the Knicks beat the Bulls 4-3 <laughs> yeah I mean it was a little bit before my time but it was still always nice for us to finally beat the Bulls but ultimately it was about MJ um, but no, I think it's a testament to Scotty's character going back to the tri- uh, tribulations of Pippin for that season. 
he was performing at an MVP caliber level. So you can appreciate and understand the frustration. He's always had been battling this narrative that he's riding MJ's coattails and that, you know, he's not an all-star, he's just MJ's psychic. And I think that is a disservice to how good Scotty was. He was the ultimate facilitator, but he could also play that leadership role in my mind. Also, he talks a little bit about play and, and the use of the triangle. And I think that going into that 94 season, a lot of people, including Phil Jackson, had an element to prove without MJ. He was part of that system and, oh, well, you know, the triangle would work for anybody if you had MJ. Um, and I think that there was points to be made. And, and I think they did. You can see and understand why he was frustrated to not get that last shot and not get that leadership role, you know, in those sort of high pressure moments. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I completely agree. But then you look at people like Patson, who a couple of years before had had hit that huge shot and MJ had obviously trusted him to do that. But then in comparison, as you said, we, we view Scotty as the facilitator, yet he wasn't willing to, to in, that, in that scenario to facilitate. It was, it was really interesting as an insight. And the people that were observing that team were saying that Phil did some of his best coaching in that year. And you can, you can imagine why, because they would probably be more of a well-rounded team in terms of not necessarily isolating as much as they would with the talent as, as big as Jordan. Pip even, even alluded to it, and he said that we, we learned to win by committee. We shared mm. the ball, and everyone got a touch of it. Everyone was part of it, rather than isolating necessarily with Jordan. And I thought that was reminiscent of the Warriors, obviously with the Steve Kerr influence in more recent times. And I thought that was quite an interesting parallel that Steve Kerr's come from that winning you know, system. Ball movement was the, the prerequisite for winning championships. Certainly, I believe in those, those later years, you know, the sort of second three-peat. And then obviously that's translated to the modern day NBA in you know the, the Golden State Warriors. And, and both teams are considered the best team of all time. Certainly the 2017 Warriors as well. The final part of that episode is Jordan obviously speaking about you know bringing teams up to that standard that we discussed earlier. And he was sort of citing that he never, he never asked any other man else to do something that he didn't do. And if you, didn't want to, if you don't want to play that way, don't play that way and, and leave was his mentality. And it was the first time we'd seen him emotional, I suppose, to, to, that, to that level about the game of basketball. See a tear coming out right before the episode concludes. Did you, did you have any thoughts, mate? Did you think that was a nice moment? I thought it was just, yeah, it was a very uh, polarising moment because like you say, you don't really always associate emotions with MJ. To see that more human side of him at the Kobe Memorial was quite, a, again, a humanising element and a very emotional moment for us and, and for basketball fans across the world. Moving on to episode eight, we start with a certain BJ Armstrong, who I think is now Dirt Rose's agent. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure. That matchup was, again, something that doesn't necessarily get talked about for people of a younger age that maybe are looking back on this um, and that, that Bulls dynasty. It's not something that's as widely known. And again, it was one. It was a moment that I was unaware of in terms of his, his game one, game winner. I thought there was a lot of parallels there to kind of Rondo in versus the Celtics when he was a ball in 2016 and just being three steps ahead of everyone else, knowing knowing all the players inside out, knowing the players so well. Pretty, a pretty big mistake maybe to be talking shit to Michael Jordan after you've hit one shot. I think he kind of knew in the moment. He kind of caught himself, but it was too late. He'd obviously had his moment and performed absolutely brilliantly, scores that last second jumper to put them up five, I believe. And he's sort of screaming and glaring at the ball's bench. That's just not a good idea. And, you know, obviously MJ 
didn't need any extra motivation and took any sort of slight that I'm just going to rip your throat out. BJ only scored, I think, what two points in game two. And that was kind of all she wrote. And obviously they close out the Hornets in uh, five games. And I think that the precursor for that is don't piss off Michael Jordan because he will come at you with everything he has. And, and normally it was good enough to beat you. <laughs> so, yeah. I think this episode predominantly focuses in on his ability to overcome after losses and taking the, the break for 18 months, losing games like that in, in moments where he for whatever reason, wasn't having as good of a game. I forget who the guy was that was giving him buckets in one game where he could barely score. Comes back say, in the first half, I'm going to give this kid what he gave me in the entire game and, and goes on to score 36. And all, all from him, just get the comment of the guy saying, nice game, Mike. years later and he'd actually made that up. That actually didn't happen. The guy never came over and put his hand over him. That just shows the He's... psychotic sort of element of MJ. Mo- moving on it now, it focuses on MJ's comeback and Bulls franchise how they were dealing with it, how the how the players felt about him potentially coming back. You know, the press activity around that time, of the feelings towards him potentially being a bull again. We see it in, in that press release where he, he simply puts, I'm back, sent by fax, which made me laugh too. <laughs> no, totally, bro. It's almost like a morning when he retires in 93 in Chicago. He's returning in a Bulls uniform, wearing number 45 because his dad had never seen him wearing another number. And, you know, it's almost like a new chapter. And again, you kind of see that human side that, you know, I think he even addresses it saying that he felt naked in his first game without his dad um, that had always been there alongside and supporting him. Those trials and tribulations in that 95 season were a testament to that, a testament to his character and his ability to overcome those odds and and deal with quite tragic in in, in his personal life. I didn't realise that he came back so late on in that season when they were sort of already, I think, around the 500 mark, weren't they, as a team? And the things that he had to do, obviously dealing with the fact that Horace Grant had moved over to Orlando after the Bulls didn't extend his contract and coming back to kind of Market Square Arena and, and performing in that situation. Now, I think it was Nick Anderson who, who picked up MJ, you know, in, in that first game and you see him get picked, which is something that we, we very rarely see with him taking the ball up the, the court. And it was just such a, a strange, strange moment, I think. And also it speaks to his understanding of branding potentially, because having worn 45, obviously not only with the connotations around, you know, his feelings towards his father and not seeing him play that way, but also the fact that he could go out and potentially not play well and he he wouldn't taint that number 23. Um, I thought that was quite an intelligent move, perhaps, from him. No, yeah. I mean, I haven't actually ever viewed it that way, Jay. But yeah, no, interesting insight. I mean, you say he didn't play well. In the 95 series, 95 playoffs, he was actually averaging 31.5 points a game after his 18-month hiatus. And in that Orlando series, he scores 19 points in game one. And you think, OK. He then comes back with 38, 40. 26, 39, and ultimately they lose in six games, but he still scored 24 in that elimination game. Not bad for a guy that's had an 18-month hiatus. But like you say, and like you alluded to quite rightly, it was such a strange sensation. Even going back and watching it now all these years later, you associate Michael Jordan with greatness, especially in those clutch moments. And to see him not perform and make those mistakes is a very foreign concept. And I think because ultimately it wasn't in the NBA finals and because he'd only just come back and he was dealing with all these things, I think we've kind of given MJ a little bit of a pass, which I know will make a a lot of the LeBron James sort of enthusiasts quite annoyed. But I think that's how we sort of grade people is 
how you performed on the highest stage. It wasn't in the NBA finals, so it didn't necessarily count. It wasn't a full season, so it didn't necessarily count. And then obviously he comes back in 96, arguably one of the best teams of all time in the 72 and 10 Chicago Bulls. I think it was even more motivation, obviously, for for Jordan that Grant was on that team as well. And it, it was part of the reason that potentially they were as good as they were in that 96 season. He came prepared. But <laughs> again, funny, funny parallel with LeBron in that at that time, Jordan was the, what they called the, the, the Jordan Dome filming Space Jam. And he'd invited all these peak players for pickup games, scouting the people whilst they were coming. It was just pure MJ, you, you know, trying to, trying to get back to that peak, trying to build his body back up. What a pickup game to be a part of. I bet that was some fantastic basketball. Obviously, Reggie Miller talks about how that, that was some of the best basketball he's, he's played in that, in that summer. So I, I think that probably would have been a special moment. Interesting to see, obviously, what's happening at the moment and Space Jam 2 being quite close to, to release. I think it's probably it's 2021, isn't it, that that comes out? Yeah, I believe so, bro. Yeah, I think it was really interesting. I love the archive footage. I'd love seeing all those sort of 90s star players in Reggie Miller, Patrick Ewing, just, you know, going for a pickup game. And there are a lot of mirrors to today's modern NBA and obviously guys playing in the summer. And, and, and I think that the guys of today do get a bad rap. I think that the old sort of testament of the NBA aren't as infallible as they sometimes like to believe. There were friendships there. It perhaps just wasn't as obvious and as documented as it is now because of the exposure and level of that we you know, now have to these NBA players. It comes back to what we were talking about the other day and the way that the rules have changed and the things that they can and can't get away with. In that 90s era, you could get away with punching someone in the face or being particularly aggressive, screaming at someone, physically intimidating them in those sorts of ways without even a fragrant foul or a technical in some in some cases. Obviously not all of them, but you know what I mean? If now, because it's so much more stringent and so much tighter in that respect, I think players aren't able to do that without getting pretty serious fines. So that's not necessarily their fault. It doesn't mean that they're soft and they don't have that burning ambitions inside of them to be that level of competitive. I think the, the stakes are just higher for them. And obviously with social media, the, the way that society has changed, all those different factors come into play. Brings brings us on to, they go back against the Magic in the, in the second attempt in the playoffs the year after, obviously having beaten the Lakers 71-72 to 72 record, achieving 72-10 and 10 for that season. And as you say, arguably the best team of all time. And go back to sweep the Magic 4-zip. I don't know what the stats were for that, that series. I don't know if you have any of those. but 21 points in Game 1, 35 in Game 2, 17 in Game 3. And uh, in the, the final closeout game, 45 points. So still pretty staggering numbers, to be fair. And again, just solidified his greatness as they went on to beat a, a very talented Seattle Supersonics team as well in the 96 finals, led by Gary Payton and Sean Kemp. Shaq talks about all the time how if he hadn't left for the Lakers, he felt that potentially the Magic would have won a championship, obviously, with, with Jordan out as well. There was considerations there. A very a very big feat to, to go back and beat them. I thought it was very funny how uh, Jordan used, again, another small little piece of information to, to fire him up. The fact that George Carl kind of showed a bit of lack of respect to him in that first game and didn't really didn't speak to him at all and shrugged him off a bit. You watched some of the Sonics recently, actually, didn't you? I've just kind of been down the balls of the 90s nostalgia run and kind of been going back to watch actual full games just to get a greater context of things. I actually watched game, uh, the last game of the uh, Sonics ball series a couple of nights ago and obviously just seeing those great players of the 90s in Sean Kemp before he got fat, bless him, in the lockout of 98... <laughs> He was such 
he was such an athletic guy, man, an explosive guy. And I know that there was much conjecture that he was going to be the next sort of dominant power forward following sort of Carl Malone and Charles Barkley. Tim Duncan kind of took that feat, uh, you know, from the 99 onwards. Great series to watch back, to get that atmosphere even with the player introductions, even now, all these years later, just brings chills down my spine. And also to see Dennis Rodman playing at that premier level, you know, he, he, you've got to be impressed with what he did as a defensive player and a defensive rebounder. It was a specialist skill. I know that Bill Simmons has talked a lot about it in his recent pod, that by 98, the Chicago and basketball nation had kind of grown tired of Rodman. But there's no doubt in his physical talents and his contributions to that team, he filled that gap and that void left by Horace Grant. And he did a very, very good job. You, know, you can see even in the 96 finals, certainly I think in the third quarter of that final game, how much of an integral piece he was in the closeout of that team. There's a run where he does everything. He's rebounding, he's hustling, he's getting in Sean Kemp's head, he's scoring and he's assisting, you know, passing to MJ for a layup. I think it's just a testament to how good and how great he was. And, and I think, you know, that's something that needs to be brought up and not overlooked. Horace talks about himself, but as soon as he saw Robin in that lineup, he he basically said, look, they've, they've filled the gap that they didn't have a year ago. That was what they were missing. And from that moment on, he knew that they were in trouble as a team. And, and moving on to, obviously, the Sonics, who, who is your guy then? Obviously, having watched that back, are you a Kemp or Payton guy? Oh, mate, Gary Payton. I love Gary Payton. Absolutely love him. Um, just, just everything that he stood for and the fact that he didn't back down as a competitor, he wanted to go against MJ. And I know that George Kyle got a lot of criticism at the time for not actually switching Gary Payton onto MJ. He didn't want to sort of uh, tire Gary Payton out and wanted to utilise him on the offensive end of the floor because Peyton was a great passer, a great floor general and leader, um, but not necessarily capitalising on his greatest attribute, which was his defence. I think he led the league in steals. He was a perennial all-defensive NBA member for a good, I believe, six or seven seasons. Uh, he was just, a, you know, they called him the glove for a reason. He was just a fantastic player. Yeah, Gary Payton all day long. I'd agree. Obviously, he was Defensive Player of the Year that year. And I would have just loved to see those two mic'd up for that series because Payton was known for his trash talking. And again, you know, it was around the time of, of White Men Can't Jump and, and those sorts of films coming out. And he almost personifies that that Wesley Snipes character. I've forgotten. Oh, damn, I've forgotten the name of his character now. Would have been pretty special. And the way they made the documentary and Obviously, to have Payton speaking and it just cuts to Jordan looking at it on an iPad, laughing. <laughs> he's describing how, yeah, you know, I could have given Michael this, I could have done this. And he's like, yeah, no, nothing. No, he, could, he was not a problem for me. It moves on to the slightly more touching element in the last, last bit that we'll, we'll talk about from this episode. It being the fact that he alludes to it wasn't Payton that actually was, was kind of in his head and causing him problems. But obviously, on on that last game of the finals in in '96, it was it was Father's Day, and he he has the line, "This is for Daddy." That that hit me again. No, absolutely, Jay. That was a very very touching and an emotional moment, and I thought it was very poetic that it culminated basically on Father's Day, and things had come full circle. Whatever peace he had to find with his father's passing, I think that that was realised in that moment when he was on top of the mountain again. And he knew and said that, you know, his father was watching down on him and, and witnessing his, his greatness once again. And I thought that was a lovely, touching moment. I'd never actually seen that footage of him on the floor just sobbing. 
in the locker room. Um, a pretty, a pretty amazing moment. But it moved on to then cutting to Neil Funk, the Bulls announcer, as a very young man and commentator, and that, that immediately, from taking me to you know quite a dark place, to just just managed to cheer <laughs> me up. Good on Neil Funk, bless him. You know, obviously retiring this year, so great guy that I've obviously listened to most well every Bulls game for the last god knows how many years along with Stacey King so wishing the best yeah it was just nice nice to nice to have a little bit of lightness in there and, and something that, that turned the mood a bit and then it moves on to probably one of the, the most exciting matchups for me personally in Reggie and Mike Reggie Miller obviously going in and, and talking about <laughs> to this day how he feels that in that year they were the better team and telling himself going into that series that, you know, this is it. You're going to have to retire Michael Jordan. His attitude, that team, Reggie Miller and the Pacers in general, you know, one of my, well, my, my second favourite team. And I'm definitely very excited to, to find out about what that will lead to in the next couple of episodes. If you can, I strongly recommend that you go back and watch some of those games on YouTube because they were absolutely fiercely competitive games. Reggie didn't back down from anyone, especially not MJ. I mean, they had wars all throughout the 90s. And I think it's, again, unfortunately for Reggie Miller, he was another one who just came along at the wrong time and didn't get, wasn't quite able to get that ring that he deserved. We need to stop qualifying players on their greatness in terms of how many championships they've won because Reggie Miller was a great player in his own right. You go and watch those games. I mean, they took them seven games and there was serious worry and concern that they weren't going to get to the finals and ultimately get to the top of the mountain again. Anyone who hasn't actually seen it, go back to the YouTube archives and um, have a little look at the games just to get a, a greater degree of, of context. I'm going to be doing that in the next couple of days, I think. I'm hoping that we can get a certain Patrick Boylan <laughs> to speak about it because I know he'll have been watching. That'll be a really interesting conversation to have, hopefully, with someone who's obviously been a a lifetime Pacers fan is is part of that um, Pacers setup in the media team. I know that they they still to this day idolise Reggie. So yeah, I'm I'm hoping that will be part of our next couple of episodes. A really a really fantastic couple of episodes, and I think possibly my my favourite so far. Yeah, no, I second that, Jay, and I can't wait. Now, unbelievably, I can't believe that we're nearly at the end. It's uh, it's gone a bit too quick for me. I want it to last a bit longer. Certainly, when there's no sports at the moment, I second that. Can't wait for the instalment or the final instalments of The Last Dance. Thank you for listening to episode six of Two Brits, One Orange Ball. Please like and subscribe if you've enjoyed the episode so far. We are available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Coming up in the next few podcasts, we'll be speaking to international commentator Josh Bett, the former London Royals commentator who currently freelances for FIBA and the Basketball Champions League. We'll review the final two episodes of The Last Dance We'll also be speaking to Pat Boylan, Indiana Pacers radio host, sideline reporter and pay-by-pay announcer for the Indiana Fever. Finally, Sam Nita, owner of hoopfix.com and full-time British basketball advocate. We look forward to having you join us.